Good morning. I'd like to start this morning uh, by taking a look at a very fine piece of art. Um, tech crew, if you want to throw that up, what I'd like you to do is while I set up, there are a bunch of stick figures here, and one of them is a king, and I would like for you to go through and see if you can figure out which one is the king. So I'll give you a couple seconds to do that. Kind of like Where's Waldo? How are we doing? Okay, actually, it's probably difficult, actually probably impossible. Let's go ahead and do another slide. Maybe this will make it a little easier for you. Oh, there we go. Yes. Okay, now it's much more obvious who the king is. And it's clear because of the posture of all the little stickmen following that king. That's what we notice from this image. And that's what I want to talk about this morning is this idea of posture. And if it's all right, I'd like to step back and speak in some generalities. And I'd like to paint an idea with a very broad brush. And I recognize there can be some inherent dangers with that. And I recognize that it can cause some frustration for people wanting to leave with something very specific to go and do today. But sometimes I think it's healthy for us to step back and look at the big picture, to examine our hearts, to move beyond the mind and into the soul. That's what I hope to do, and I think it's an important message for Lakeland, because we, as the people here of this church, are image bearers of God. Just like we look to the stick figures that are bowing down to understand who the God is in that picture, people will look to us to point us to God. And our posture through that process is incredibly important. It's no secret that the perceptions of Christians is sometimes less than ideal, there seems to even be a certain amount of disdain for us. And I have a clip here of a poll that some Christians put together, you know, asking them, hey, what do you think of us? And um, a news story picked it up. And so um, let's go ahead and roll that clip, and then we'll talk through it. This, to your point, the numbers were startling. They were, when you look I at agree, yes. Off the charts on some of these, let's get you. This was a research done by a Christian-based group. So this wasn't secular. This was a Christian group, basically... Christian research for Christians to see what uh, those that don't go to church think of you. 79% of those polled say Christianity is more about organized religion than about loving God and loving your neighbor. Here's another one that caught our eye. 72% say the church is full of a lot of hypocrites. And this one really struck me, the one you alluded to, to Christians get on your nerves, almost half, 44% said yes. Again, here's my, uh, my take is that Christianity, although not everyone is going to agree, not everyone is a Christian, you would think it's about... Uh, love. It's about a good news message of Jesus be, and helping right? the yeah. poor. Not this kind of information coming back at the church. So let's talk to the mastermind behind this study, Ed Stetzer. There's a book that's been circulating around. It's titled Unchristian. And it goes through because Gallup, um, you know, Gallup does Gallup polls. They did some research as well. And they put together some statistics that were very similar to what this Christian poll came back with. In this book, Unchristian, he goes through and he breaks some of that down. And so from, from that, I'd like to read some of the top answers. These are phrases that describe present-day Christianity. So ask people, what is it that makes somebody a Christian? 91% anti-homosexual is the top response. 87% judgmental. 85% hypocritical. 75% too involved in politics. 72% out of touch with reality. 78% old-fashioned. Still, like, hmm. Insensitive to others was 70%. Boring, 68%. Not accepting of other faiths, 64%. Confusing, 61%.
thought this was interesting, teaches the same basic idea as other religions, came in at 82%, seems genuine and real, 41%, something that makes sense, 41%, and only 30% said it was relevant to their lives. Overall, 66% of those surveyed said religion is losing its influence on American life. Among that group, 49% versus 53% in 2010, so an increasing number said that that's a, or a decreasing number said that's even a bad thing, and 12% said they were happy to kick religion in the rear on its way out the door. And I get that I think Lakeland is often very different um, than a lot of churches. Maybe it's because I go here and this is the church I love. Um, but I do think we're different. For one, I think the stats would be, uh, I don't see how nerdy did not end up on the, uh, the uh, poll. As if all the Lord of the Rings clips that we show around here weren't enough, we showed Star Trek The Next Generation on Easter Sunday. <laughs> so there's some things that might be a little different around here, but I wonder how much of this speaks to, true to Lakelanders. And it certainly speaks true of me. Because the perception people of uh, the perception of the people of God isn't all that great, and the sad part is I'm not sure it's all that unjustified. I mean, let's face it, just a cursory examination of the Christian heritage reveals the people that have had crusades, we've intentionally spread disease as a means of conquest, we have conquered much of the earth's resources, often in the name of God, we've used scripture to condone slavery and oppress women, we have not been kind to people with homosexuality, people of other faiths, or even people that we just see as strange. Our churches are completely divided. There are hundreds of sects and denominations. Theology is supposed to be the study of God. God talk in its simplest translation. But it often seems to me that it's been less about God talk and more about which Christian club we're in. You can get on any social media or message board and watch the Christians point each other and yell heretic. I've even posted comments here and there, and I thought that might be honestly contributing to the conversation, right or wrong. I was trying to just be honest and have dialogue, and I found people instantly reading it, labeling me into whatever denomination, belief system, classification they have, and then responding with anger. Other Christians responding with anger towards things I'm not even really sure I posted. It's just what they assumed because of the polarizing attitudes sometimes we take with one another. And I wonder how this must look to the outside world. We can sometimes be so sure of ourselves and so fearful of others that we say awful things. And the perception of the world has may be justified. And I don't know about you, but even in the midst of all these struggles and all the division in the church, I have felt a certain pressure all my life to take on this posture that for one, has become absolutely exhausting, and for two, doesn't seem consistent with failures our failures as a whole, and my failures personally. All my life I've been told that I have to stand up for my faith. I've heard and fully bought into this time and time again. I've seen it on signs. I've heard it from the pulpit. And I used to think it was all just a little goofy. But now I cringe when I read through conference titles like this. I used to be a youth pastor, so these things came across my desk. You know, bring your kids to this deal. I think most of them are probably trying to be harmless, but maybe it's the tone. Here's one, Declaration 2010, and then in all bolds right across the front, I am Christian, all caps. 
And maybe that one's not as bad, but listen to this. You have to treat 2009. This means war. Some of them, they're just trying to be hypey, I think. Living out loud and loud, all caps, living out loud. Or extreme takeover. And I'm sure these conferences and retreats have good things to say. But do they have to do it while sounding so hostile and arrogant? I'm not sure people want to be on the receiving end of an extreme takeover. And by what means exactly will this extreme takeover occur? And are we absolutely clear with our students what we mean by that? There seems this, to be this unnecessary, if not just potentially dangerous, pressure to posture ourselves to take a stand, to hype each other up with a Christian battle cry. And I used to think this was fine, but what I'm realizing these days is it actually makes us very ugly, and we end up with survey results like what we see. It makes us ugly because taking a stand for our faith is not very easy. When you're sitting in a room full of people and you stand up, you get noticed. But maybe in addition to getting noticed, sometimes you get exposed. You can shout and you can live loud your ideas all you want, but if you have any hypocrisy, it will be exposed. This take a stand posture has been tried by Christians. I think it's been indoctrinated by youth conferences and perpetrated by the Christian music industry for decades, and it's exposed us because, let's face it, we are filled with hypocrisy. If God needs us to take a stand for him, surely it's not us. We're broken. We're unjust. We're greedy. We're selfish. We're blind. We're confrontational. We are judgmental. Sometimes we're just too ignorant of what God is doing to take a stand for him. Jesus was none of these awful things. And even he didn't stand up for himself. In Luke chapter 23, verses 33 through 7, we read this. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there. Along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. But he didn't. He had a very different message for us on that day. And he was about to set a very outrageous example. And this is where we find a very bizarre hope, everyone. This is where we find freedom to discover a very rich, a very thick grace that you can taste. An undeserved love. This is the radical, revolutionary, downright insane message of Jesus Christ. God does not need us to take a stand for him as much as he wants us to lay down like him. Jesus was teaching us that day that the battle belongs to the Lord, and it has always been this way since the very beginning. In the book of Exodus, chapters 8 through 14, we read that it was God that freed the Israelites from slavery. He sent the plagues. He parted the seas. That battle was his. In the book of Joshua, chapter 6, we read that they finally arrived at this promised land, and they're told when they get there to march around the city, of Jericho seven times. At the end of that, they're supposed to blow their horns and the city wall will come crashing down. 
They must have been nervous about that. They must have looked like fools. Why all this crazy stuff? I think it's because God was teaching them a lesson. This battle will be mine, let's be clear. In the book of Judges, chapter 7, we read that this guy Gideon, he's asked to face the powerful army of the Midianites. And he's terrified because he's from the weakest tribe of Israel. He's from Manasseh, and you don't want to be from Manasseh. Not only that, when he shows up with his men, God says, there is too many of you. We need to send about 30,000 about 30, of them home because we're going to use 300 today. They must have been quaking in their boots facing the powerful Midianite army with 300 men. But God gives the Midianites strange dreams that night about big loaves of bread rolling over their tents. I've always wondered, what was that all about? I mean, is that supposed to be scary? Oh no, Lord, don't roll over my tent with a big loaf of bread. It scares them, though, and it continues to get weirder because the next day, the weakest tribe of Israel shows up with 300 men, they blow some horns, they smash some pots together, and their enemies run in terror. That battle belonged to God. In 1 Kings chapter 18, we read that some prophets of Baal are challenging the Hebrew God. So God tells Elijah to simply build a sacrifice and pour water all over it. First, he has the prophets of Baal. They do their dancing and singing. They try to conjure up their gods. It doesn't come to any avail. I wonder if Elijah was nervous before he poured water on wood to see what would happen. I wonder if he wondered if God would show up. Because they'd kill him if not. Elijah bowed down and did as God asked, and God did show up. He sent a fire from heaven that consumed the altar, and the prophets of Baal were seized that day. God alone was in control. In 2 Kings chapter 6, we read that Elisha, different prophet, similar name, is surrounded by the Arameans this time, and God gives him a glimpse of the world around him. And he's allowed to see this hillside, and it's covered with flaming chariots, angels of the Lord. God's saying, I'm here. But even with all these flaming and chariots, the armies of the Lord surrounding him, there's no battle. God simply strikes the Aramean army with blindness. The story ends with Elisha being told to take them into the house of Israel, feed the Arameans a great feast, and send them on their way. The battle was not theirs. Not even a drop of blood was shed on that one. God alone was in control. The Bible is filled with story after story of God having people do the most ridiculous things to make a point. The point being, the battle is not ours. It is the God. It is the king of kings that goes before us. We are not called to stand up for him. We are called to lay down and submit to him. Perhaps one of the most telling moments occurs the night Jesus is arrested. He's been betrayed by a very trusted friend who shows up with this group of Roman soldiers. And Peter is one of Jesus' main guys. And so he draws a sword and decides to take matters into his own hands. Runs over, cuts the ear off one of the soldiers. And I'm sure that Peter is absolutely positive that he's doing the right thing. Peter has been waiting for this moment when they can finally kick these Roman dogs out and put the true king of Israel on the throne. I'm sure Peter thinks he's doing the right thing. He must have been very excited. Finally, the revolution has begun. But Jesus stops him, heals the soldier, and then rebukes him with these words. Matthew 26, verse 52. 
Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? Peter was ready and willing to take a stand. But Jesus had a very different message for him. His way is not one of standing with strength and power, but a way of laying down in surrender and sacrifice. Only that leads to true greatness. And I believe that's the message he has today. Jesus does not need us to stand for him as much as he wants us to lay down like him. And this is not a message of shame or defeat. This is not the easy road. It's not giving up. Peter had no problem drawing the sword and taking matters into his own hands. That was easy. That's the easy road. But when Jesus got up on the cross and showed Peter how he really wanted things done, Peter was petrified. That was craziness. He denied even knowing that guy. Understanding that we are unworthy is not weakness. It's freedom. It's the model Jesus sends for us. It frees us to surrender to the one who is worthy. It frees us to examine the planks in our own eye. It frees us to come together in peace and unity. It frees us to put our faith in a very gracious God. And be willing to admit that. I'm here because of a very gracious God. And this, I think, is far more attractive to an unbelieving world anyway. We don't have to fear each other and draw walls or lines or battlegrounds to guard our beliefs. We instead can come together. It's okay. We can seek unity. We can love our neighbor. We can love our enemy. We can have faith that God will sort out his truth among us. Go ahead and have our theology talks, God talk. Go ahead and argue our politics. Engage our church. Engage our culture. But not postured like the guy on the right. But postured like the guy on the left. We don't have to fear the angry or the depressed, the drunkards, the slanderers, the gossips, the immoral or the greedy. We don't have to fear how they might look at us. To fear them is to simply fear ourselves. Because we've all fallen short. You don't have to take a stand or be fit enough to take a stand in order to enter this sanctuary. We don't have to preach to others out of our own guilt for where we've fallen short. We don't have to fake it until we make it. We don't have to staple the fruits of the Spirit to our souls as if that ever bears lasting transformation anyway. We don't have to pretend anymore. This is a place where we flee to Jesus in brokenness. Lay down at his feet. Have faith that God knows your heart and have faith that God alone will judge you justly. Have faith that God will pick up the pieces of your broken soul because he is making all things new. It's between you and God, and we as a community have to give each other space to let things be between them and God. He has the answers, not us. And certainly this will be much more attractive to an unbelieving world. An interesting one on the idea of coming together, I talked to somebody I respect very much, and he said that his adult married um, son and daughter, they came to Lakeland for a while, and after two or three months, they loved it. They loved the people, they loved the teaching, 
They felt like the Spirit of God was doing something among this community. Different from other churches. They'd visited many churches. There was something here. But eventually it came to a Sunday morning and Garrett did an infant baptism. And they had to leave. Because somewhere along the way, some very well-meaning pastor told them that infant baptism is not the way of God. And if you're willing to do infant baptism, then what do they believe about the rest of the Scripture? Where, do we, where, does, where are they going to draw their lines? And so they had to leave. They had no choice. I wonder if they understood that we could have a different posture. Maybe we don't agree on infant baptism, but, but we came there, we think, honestly. In fact, Lakeland didn't used to do infant baptism. We've kind of moved into that theology after posturing and discussing and praying and contemplating with other Christians. What is this thing? We found a lot of value in the idea of holding our children up and saying, we understand that, that you alone, God, will be in control of this child. We offered up. We get it. You are the one that makes things new. We offer this child up. It's okay to disagree. We might not even be right about that. But do we have to draw battle lines? Do they have to fear the teaching and stand up for their faith by walking out the door as we do it? It's very tempting to just take matters into our own hands. It's very easy to look around the world and fear that things will fall apart if we don't take a stand, that our theology will slip away, that our morality will slip away, that everything will slip away if we don't take a stand. It's easy for us to get fearful that someone might say something wrong, something like Facebook. (laughs) It's easy to get fearful about those we let in these doors. It's easy to get fearful about who we allow to gather around us, but we can be free of fear. That's not what motivates us. There is a God that goes before us, and it is him that will make all things new. We can even join him in this great work. We can join him. But we must understand our place and our posture as we do this. Because we are a people that's broken and dependent on mercy. John chapter 8 says this, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and noticed his posture. He wrote in the dust with his finger. Someday I want to ask him what that was all about. Was he writing something specific? Is he just doodling? I do that when I get into a discussion or something. It's just like, ugh. We just don't get it. we, We just don't get it. So he's drawing in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again. And he said, all right. But let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until Jesus was the only one left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, 
Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus says, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. We are not fit to condemn others. And this is a very humbling thought. We don't have what it takes to throw stones, so let's be free of it. We can assume a posture not of standing, but of submission. We can even continue to do good where good can be done, continue to restore light and hope to humanity. We can still move, but not through strength and arrogance and pride and height, but through humility and surrender. Not by standing like Peter did, but by laying down like Jesus did. And that's something I have to believe an unbelieving world will find more attractive anyway. And Jesus was well aware of that. I had a four-month sabbatical last year, and over this sabbatical, I had a lot of time to sit in the middle of nowhere of the badlands of South Dakota and think. And I realized while I was out there, below the surface of my soul, I was drowning in anger and fear. I had an idea before I left, because I was angry. But I had no idea how deep it was. And as I sat in solitude at the feet of Jesus... It was like a floodgate opening up. Fear and anger was pouring out. I realized I was drowning in it. I had become angry about very many things. I was angry about politics not going my way. Because surely this is the way. I was angry about things in the church not going my way. Because this is what the church does, not this. And I was angry about it. I was angry about injustice in the world. I was angry at friends that I didn't feel were doing enough about it. I was angry about students that were ignoring the wisdom I was giving them. I was angry I couldn't keep them in check, force them to be kind to one another and grow up. I was angry when I felt unsupported or unappreciated. I was equally angry when I felt like people were too much in my business. I was angry at my failures. I was angry at my food addiction. I was angry about parts of my character that never seemed to change. 20 years into this, not changing. I was angry about the people I had hurt and the lies and the exaggerations and the constant image management that I had succumbed to. But before I left, a friend gave me an album with this song called Equally Skilled. And I listened to this song a lot. At first, I wasn't sure what it was all about. But somehow it resonated with me very deeply. I listened to it over and over because I was desperately trying to find out the fullness of its meaning. Why when I listen to this do I break down in tears? Somehow it seemed to be soaking past my mind and into my soul. And then eventually it finally hit me. I was angry because I had lost my faith in God. Somewhere in all the wear and tear of ministry, I had lost faith that God was in control, that he would show up, that he gave a rip about what was happening to us down here. I had totally lost faith in that. I had become utterly dependent on my own two hands to get things done. But at the same time, I knew the fruitlessness of, the fruitlessness of this because I knew that my hands are utterly broken. I know the corruption. Only God's hands are truly skilled at justice and mercy. And I had lost sight of that. And I'd like to share this song with you now and ask my friend Ben 
Um, well, I asked him. He's kind enough to sing it. And I just ask that as he does, you quiet your mind, still your breathing, and listen. Listen closely to the lyrics. And listen for the voice of the Spirit. Where might you be angry or afraid with society? Where might you be angry or afraid with your friends? Where might you be angry or afraid with your family? Where might you be angry or afraid with your work? Angry and afraid with your spouse? Will you battle to get what you want? Or is it time for a new way? Is it time to surrender? Perhaps God will work those things out for you. Perhaps God will work with your fear and anger as he's still working with mine. And there perhaps we can find humility that leads to freedom. Let's go ahead and sing. And the line in that song, I think, sums up the posture that I now resonate with. It's this one. I will be patient as the Lord judges me for the wrongs I've done against him. But after that, he'll take my case, bringing me to light and to justice for all I have suffered. Because his hands are equally skilled. Will you stand with me? Receive the benediction. May you be free of the weight to fix and control the world around you. May you be free to lay down at the feet of the one that makes all things new. May you bring light to the world around you, not as a person who casts the first stones, but as a person of peace and submission, as modeled on the cross by the Son of our Lord, Jesus Christ. May we all dwell in his incredibly skilled justice and mercy. Amen.